Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Protecting Our Children, how radical gender ideology is taking over public schools and harming kids. Please welcome Jay Richards, the Heritage Foundation's William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow. Well, it's good to see you all, uh, both in person and welcome to those of you that are joining us online. We're here over the next hour for a very important but very difficult discussion. We're going to get a glimpse at what gender ideology is doing in our public schools. Gender ideology is a complex topic, but it strikes at the heart of what it means to be human. It amounts to denying the biological reality that human beings are sexually dimorphic. In other words, of course we're created equal, but we're also created man and woman, male and female. That's a basic reality which gender ideology seeks to supplant. It seeks instead to replace this idea of sex with an entirely subjective notion of gender identity, a very recent term and concept. And gender identity is unmoored from our sexed bodies. If you know nothing about gender ideology and you only remember that, remember that it represents the separation of gender identity from biological sex. Gender ideology, unfortunately, has been working its way into America's public schools for years. It appears in both the official curriculum and extracurricular activities. It also works its ways into classrooms through unofficial teacher training programs, which turn teachers into gender evangelists. On a parallel track, unfortunately, students get sucked into gender ideology through social media influencers. This has fueled a pandemic of gender confusion among children and especially among girls. As a result, schools have started to enable and even coax gender-confused students to so-called socially transition without their parents' knowledge or consent. This can put kids on the fast track to more drastic interventions, puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, even sterilizing surgical intervention that can result in what Abigail Schreer calls irreversible damage in her book by the same name. Now, there are two main victims of gender ideology. First, of course, are the children that fall prey to it through social media and schools. But the second related victims are the parents themselves. Teachers, counselors, and doctors tell them that if they want to save their child's life, they need to affirm his or her claimed gender identity. This often means denying what they know to be true about their own children. It also means giving in to an alien worldview that seems to have captured the minds, not only of their children, but school and medical authorities as well. Thousands of kids and their parents are suffering as a result. But the social costs of speaking out are steep. No parent wants to be doxxed and harassed on social media or to expose their children to ridicule. In many cases, parents who speak out may lose their jobs, their support network, their friends, their reputation, even custody over their own sons and daughters. But a few brave parents have started to speak out, to defend their rights 
and the rights of their children and everyone's children. Behind them is a growing army of victims who cannot yet speak. Joining us today, we have three moms who are speaking publicly about this issue from three different states with three very different stories. First is Nicole, Nicole Solis from Rhode Island. Second will be January Littlejohn from the state of Florida. And second will be Abby Martinez from California. I'm going to introduce each of them individually and then have them come up for a, a few minutes of prepared remarks. And then we'll spend the rest of the hour in conversation on stage and also with those of you that are uh, attending either in person or online. Nicole Solis is a mom of two in Rhode Island. When she enrolled her daughter in kindergarten, her school district publicly threatened to sue her for submitting public records requests about critical race theory and gender theory. Then the teachers union did sue her for submitting public records requests, and she's been in litigation for seven months. Her daughter is now in a private school, but she's still fighting the radical leftist indoctrination in public school. Nicole is a Massachusetts attorney, so yes, the public school district is suing an attorney over this, and she's a recent year fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Please welcome Nicole Solis. Hello, everyone. Um, I don't know if you can see me. <laughs> okay, but you can hear me. Um, so. As Jay said, I um, am being sued by the teachers union, and I want to go into a little bit of detail about how, how we got to that point. Um, when I enrolled my daughter in school, I, I asked how they were teaching critical race theory and gender theory, and my school didn't want to answer my questions. They, they told me to submit public records requests about that, but they did answer a few of my questions that led me to believe that there was um, something very concerning going on. So um, this started when I called my principal at my school, and when I said, how, you know, how are you teaching gender theory if you're teaching it? And they said that they use common practices when they, when they teach gender theory. And one thing that they do is they don't call children boys and girls. They are very mindful of refraining, or they refrain from calling children boys and girls. They refrain from using gendered terminology. And they also embed the values of gender identity into the classroom in every grade at an age-appropriate level. But what does that really mean? Well, I got some examples from the teacher, um, and because my daughter's in kindergarten, she gave me a kindergarten example, which is, well, if we are going to break the students up into groups, we won't um, you know, say boys over here, girls over here. Another way they would um, you know, refrain from making a gendered separation of groups is they would say, well, we don't want to say um, you know, everyone with pigtails over here, which is, you know, an interesting example, because if, if you know anything about gender identity, uh, gender identity ideology, well, boys can have pigtails, right? So that was interesting to me because I thought, well, I, I don't know if teachers and schools are really understanding what this is and, and how to apply it themselves. Um, and the other really concerning thing was that they couldn't define what a common practice was. And the only thing I can glean about what a common practice is is that it's simply something that schools do that they don't put in writing, so you can't get information on it in a public records request. And it's also whatever they want to do. It's just a practice that becomes common in a school, and they can't cite any kind of educational pedagogy that supports it. And they were very um, not happy that I was asking for an educational pedagogy that would support these practices of not calling children boys and girls and um, you know, embedding 
the values of this really radical political ideology. Um, then I come to find out that my school actually has an open policy that they adopted in 2017 called, and I'm sure most of you know about this in schools, it's a transgender and gender expansive non-discrimination policy. So what's very frightening about this is that they, um, under the banner of non-discrimination, they are assisting students to transition genders, which, you know, the way I say it is just change your sex because I don't believe in transitioning genders. And they do it without parental consent. And in the policy, they're very clear that parents are not included in this if the student and the school together decide that it's not safe to include the parents. But there's no definition of what would make it unsafe um, for a parent to be included. But I have a funny feeling that a parent would not be included if they disagree with the political ideology that is gender ideology. So that factored into me taking my daughter out of school because I thought, what if she's five years old, you know, and she has this wild imagination and she says she's a boy, are they going to secretly transition my daughter into being a boy, which includes letting her change clothes at school, changing her name on her official school records, and, you know, especially in this policy at my school, there's, there's no age threshold. Um, there's, there's really no rules on how they do this. They also, um, they have what they call point teams. So a student can request that they have a point team, which is made up of teachers, staff, mental health professionals, that will then create a plan with a timeline on how to successfully transi transition students from one gender or sex to another. Um, I, I let my school know that I believe this was illegal. I emailed the lawyers at the school. I was, you know, citing, you know, our Supreme Court, right? Maybe Pierce v. Society Sisters is a, is a good case to say that you can't do this without parental consent. Um, but then, of course, I got stonewalled and we then, you know, um, go down this road where now I'm being sued by the teachers union for asking for information about this. Um, I think a little later I'll, I'll get into what I've discovered about how this happened in Rhode Island schools because these policies are in all Rhode Island schools um, and parents really don't know about it. Um, do you know how much more time I have left, Jay? A couple minutes, okay. Um, the uh, other interesting thing that happened when I found this transgender policy is that I decided to submit public records requests to understand, you know, how how is this policy really being implemented? How many students are being transitioned without their parents' knowledge or consent? So I submitted a public records request just asking for the number of students that are being secretly transitioned and their parents don't know. And my school came back and said, well, we can't give you that information, it's private. And I challenged them and said, I just want the number. Is it is it 10, is it 100, what is it? And they said, well, the only way we can answer that is by providing student records, which are you know, private and confidential. However, a public entity can give you that number if they want to. And I know this because my school has given me numbers, um, different data points that I've asked for without giving me private information. They don't have to provide me with the student records. They could just see the student records themselves and then email me and say, it's this amount of students. They don't wanna do that and they're politically motivated to not do that. So they have a choice. And so if you're trying to get information about your child or how many children are being secretly transitioned in school, if you get that answer, you should challenge them on it. The other really um, astounding thing that my school said when they said that I couldn't get this information was that it's not in the public's interest. So here we are having a panel um, about this 
And my particular school district in South Kingston, Rhode Island, believes that even if this were public information, it's just, it's not of interest to the public. So that's extremely concerning to me. This is obviously um, immensely concerning to the public. And um, I'm hoping that we can break new ground to um, just raise awareness and get people to ask more questions like I did. Thanks so much, Nicole. So our second panelist is January Littlejohn. January is a full-time mom to three children in Tallahassee, Florida. She has a master's degree in counseling and a specialist degree in education. She's also a licensed mental health counselor in Florida. Prior to COVID, she spent most of her free time volunteering at her children's schools and serving on PTO boards. She was even a volunteer of the year at the middle school where the parental rights violation occurred with her daughter, in which you'll hear about in a moment. Now her free time is devoted to educating parents on the dangers of gender ideology and trying to restore parental rights in public schools. She also helps parents whose children have fallen prey to this ideology find resources to support their family through this crisis and understand all treatment options available to them. Please welcome January Littlejohn. Good afternoon. My name is January Littlejohn, like Jay said, and I am a stay-at-home mom to three incredible children, and I also happen to be a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. It is no secret that the mental health of adolescents faced a rapid decline during COVID after shutdowns of schools. It was a very confusing time, and our daughter was no exception. During the summer of 2020, our daughter told us that she was confused about her sex. And this was after three of her friends in her in-person friend group at school had also suddenly started identifying as transgender. Once school started, like so many times before, we partnered with the school and I disclosed to a teacher that our daughter was experiencing distress that we had sought mental health professional counseling for her to help us navigate this situation together, that we were not affirming at home, but we felt like she could, we couldn't stop her from going by a nickname at school. It turns out this teacher was the LGBTQ advocate on campus. Several weeks later, my daughter got into the car and said, mom, she was 13 at the time, I had a strange meeting today at school. They asked me which restroom I preferred to use. I was shocked. So I immediately emailed the school guidance counselor. I demanded to know why my child had a meeting, why I was not informed, why I was not present, invited to this meeting. I was called back with the vice principal and guidance counselor and told my 13-year-old daughter was now protected from a non, with a non-discrimination policy law from me knowing any information that happened at that meeting. To say I was shocked is an understatement. I'm, after many weeks of going back and forth with the district, we finally learned that they had socially transitioned my daughter. They completed a six-page plan behind closed doors with three school officials that consisted of the vice principal, the guidance counselor, and a social worker I had never met. The support plan was called the Transgender Gender Nonconforming Support Plan. And this was a six-page document where they asked questions 
that would have absolutely impacted my daughter's safety, such as which restroom she preferred to use, which sex she preferred to room with on overnight field trips. And then they did something especially egregious. They asked her which name she preferred the school to use when speaking to her parents. They were using a different name with teachers and students and her birth name with parents to effectively deceive us that this social transition had ever even taken place. Now, mind you, I was the one that contacted the school. There was no reason for them to cut me out of this conversation. They took away my ability to protect my daughter when they did this. When parents are excluded from decisions affecting their child's health and well-being at school, it sends the message to their children that their, their parents' input and authority are no longer valued or needed. And frankly, that the child needs to be protected from their parents instead of by their parents. This created a huge wedge between our daughter and us. My daughter was celebrated at school with her new trans identity, whereas two weeks prior, she was not celebrated or being told she was brave as a girl. A narrative I continually hear is that children should have a right to privacy from parents and that they need to be protected from unsupportive parents. The definition of the word supportive is very subjective. Who decides what is supportive? The school? What qualifies them? Parental rights under the Constitution and Florida law are not contingent on the word supportive. The question we should be asking is why are they so intent to aid children in keeping secrets from their parents who know and love them the most? Discussing gender identity issues with students without parents can lead to significant decisions that will impact their emotional, physical, and mental well-being. Schools are grossly unqualified to be making these mental health decisions without parental involvement. Just last month, a 12-year-old girl in Clay County tried to hang herself in the school bathroom. Thankfully, she survived. But disturbingly, what has come to light and has been well reported is that the school guidance counselor had been meeting with her in private for months regarding her gender identity. The parents were never informed. They had no idea these meetings were taking place or that their daughter was experiencing distress of any kind. No family should ever have to go through the nightmare they are experiencing or what that child has now endured. These parents should have been notified immediately the minute their daughter was experiencing distress at school so that they could get her the mental health support that she so desperately needed. This is one of the many reasons I will continue to speak out. Parents know and love their children more than anyone. And experts agree that parent involvement is an integral aspect to a child's success in school. Parental violations are occurring all over our state in this manner. This is not isolated to just Leon County or Clay County. This is really a systemic issue that is happening all over our nation. And even the language of these LGBTQ guides are very similar in nature. The support guides are virtually identical that are being used in our public schools. My family has now, now filed a federal lawsuit against the school district, the superintendent, and the su assistant superintendent because these types of parental violations must stop. And we have to hold schools accountable when they break the law.
Thank you very much. Well, our final panelist is Abby Martinez. Abby was born in El Salvador and grew up there until she was 18 years old when she moved to the state of California. She's lived most of her life, the, the intervening years since then, in California. She's had four children, including one who has passed away and lives now in Azusa, California. Abby has not told this story before. This is the first time this is being shared publicly. Uh, and so it is a great burden, but she's j one of these parents who is a victim of this ideology who, for obvious reasons, as you'll learn when you hear the story, did not feel ready to speak. But she has chosen today to speak, and so she has a, a prepared remarks to distill the, the, the key parts of her story. And so I'd like you to join me in welcoming Abby Martinez. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for inviting me to tell my story. Um, like Jay said, I have four children. One, uh, my story is related with hers. That's why I'm sorry, but it breaks my heart to hear, you know, what's going on and what the school district, the DCFS, LGBT, is capable to do behind our back. Um, Jaeli was born in April 23rd, 2000. My beautiful girly girl that you ever met. I have three girls, but she was the one who used to love to dress up as a princess since she was little. Uh, so I you know, I was open to, okay, buy, you know, all those princess dresses um, until she started going to middle school. Seven, eighth grade is when she had signs of depression. Um, sorry. In eighth grade, seventh grade, uh, by the end of seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, she's starting to show those um, signs of depression. I seek for help. I talk to the school so they can keep an eye on her. Uh, they did it at middle school when she turned, so she, when she started high school is when everything, the doors opened to what she was talking about it, like transgender, going to meetings, going to every, all the support that they think that they have for these children, which is not. Um, I'm sorry, this is my first time trying to tell the story again. After, she was bullied at school. So after, you know, the kid was, you know, making fun, she was such a beautiful girl, big eyes, big uh, curly eye, eyelashes. 
She used to tell me, Mom, my friends just keep telling me that I'm ugly, I've been bullied. And I said, don't listen to them. You know, they're jealous. You're beautiful. They say, oh, you're telling me that because you, you're my mom. But I don't feel like that way. So I try my best to make her and get some, uh, get her, her some um, advices and, you know, just to make her feel comfortable with herself. None of that works. So then she went through this uh, stage of, uh, you know, she had her long, beautiful hair. Um, uh, she decided to go get a haircut with a friend from school who also was going in through transgender, you know, state. So she did it. Then after that, I uh, she knew that she was not happy with her new look. So she asked me to buy, you know, long stations, extensions again. So we did everything from she went through from uh, dresses, shorts, skirt, everything, name it. Um, she went to uh, into the transition in high school. Like she was telling me, I feel like I'm a boy. So um, the school counselor was involved, the uh, uh, DCFS was involved, LGBT was in there too, trying to help my daughter uh, on the transition of being transgender. I was accused that I didn't want to open my eyes and that she felt since she was a little girl that she was a boy which was not true. She was not even close to be a tomboy. She was the girly girl in the house, dancing, uh, drawing. She was an artistic girl, nothing to do with soccer. She, uh, she wants to play soccer because the siblings uh, tried out and went in on, and Jaylee was the one who ran away from the ball since she was little because she didn't want to get hurt. And we used to yell, Yaley, get the ball, kick the ball. And she, she said, no, mom, I don't want to get hurt. They can take the ball. <laughs> so that was Yaley. I met with the principal to address the situation with the counselor, everyone. And um, they make things uh, worse because uh, the school psychology and the LGBT was tell that, uh, um, told DCFS that my daughter will be better off out of the house. And they did, they did. She, uh, they took away my daughter when she was 16 years old. I tried my best to get her back going to court every single month. I'd never missed a court date because I want my daughter back. That's all I wanted. I want to see her happy. I want her back home. One day I was making uh, breakfast for everyone, my children, and Jaylee looks very off like a zombie. And I say, Jaylee, hurry up. We have to go to school. And she, the only thing that she, I remember she 
was asking, is it time yet? Is it time yet? I thought she was joking. And I say, is it time yet for what? I'm still alive? And I said, oh, and then I was rushing and I said, yes, let's go, let's go to school. So um, get ready, get ready, get your breakfast. So um, I was, uh, she was taking some uh, medication, like uh, allergy med medication. So I went, you know, opened the cabinet and grabbed uh, the bottle and it was empty. And I asked her, what happened, Jaylee? Uh, did you, we just get that refill, what happened? Did you took, and then I said, oh no. Jaylee, what did you do? Did you take all this medicine? And she said, yes, I didn't want to wake up. And I said, no, you can't do that. So we went to school. Uh, I took her to the hospital trying to get help. So because I don't know how much damage that medicine could be in her, you know, little body. So I went and they checked it out. Everything was okay. And I said, okay, can I take my daughter home? And say, no, uh, we call uh, the social worker and you have to wait for her. And that's when the nightmare started. I have CP, uh, you know, DCFS in my house. I had LGBTQ at my house. Uh, I opened the door and I was open just to get my daughter back. Uh, I said, okay, what do you want me to do? And they, I said, I can't, you have to call her uh, Andrew. Before she went by Jay, and then she changed it, no, I'm Andrew because she went to this group of LGBT that they have at school without my permission. I didn't know that was going on until my daughter explained it. Yeah, Jaylee's meeting with this group. So I didn't know anything about it. So I kept, you know, going and supporting my daughter in every way I could to bring her back home. Uh, she, Sorry, I don't want to. Jaeli starting to put the new identity in her. Yeah, she was, uh, she was telling everyone that she was transgender, she was a boy, and she, was, uh, she wants us to call her Andrew. I talked to my daughter and I said, we're not ready for that. Uh, I can call you, you know the name, and you, uh, I hope you're okay, because this is a big change, Jaylee, you're going through a lot of stages, and you know, a lot of faces that, you know, from this, that, changing to a girly girl, and uh, I want you to keep with your counselor, going to therapy, they're gonna help you, uh, she did, she did, but the school really pushed us so hard to bring LGBT. They talked to the school site, the, the DCFS, so they were. So um, one day, Jaylee came home and told me that, Mom, I really, I feel like a boy, and I want you to understand that. And I said, Jaylee. I understand that you're going to many phases right now and it's okay. 
it's okay, it's not bad, but you need to be aware that, you know, going through all these changes is not that you're gonna change your cloth and I don't like it how I look. There, there's no going back. But uh, LGBT was very supportive in telling her that the uh, state of California will pay for all the surgeries that she can go through. Uh, she can, uh, this was the best time to do it. Because if you don't do it right now, nothing, nothing that the, your mom or anyone do it is gonna make, make you happy. And you're unhappy with your body, you hate your body, so you go for it. Um, she, she tried to commit, uh, she, first she ran away from my house, uh, tried to commit suicide um, before she runs away. And that's when she was coached by this other peer, transgender, and her mom. To just to say, you know, whatever was in her head, uh, to keep uh, something that the DCFS will believe and the school believe that she's gonna be better off out of the house. So she did, she did. And when she ran away, when she, she was kidnapped from this family, ran away, um, never came back home again. That was the last time that I had my daughter at home with me. She was put in a foster care where, where uh, LGBT was, uh, rights group was there for her, supporting her, uh, going through the changes, going through uh, Los Angeles Children's Hospital. I went at the first meeting, I forgot about that. Uh, just to see how are you gonna prepare my daughter into all this transition. Oh, she just watched a video about it and she's gonna start the, with the hormones. When I was going to court, I asked the judge to please have a, let my daughter to have another opportunity to have a psych evaluation. And my attorney came back I remember with the papers slapping and I go like, what did she say? There is no need for that because you were against this and this is gonna save your, li your daughter's life. She signed for it in behalf of your singing and she's gonna go for it. And I say before that, I want her to have a psych evaluation. There is no way that we can change our, the judge uh, mind. She already said it and she's gonna go for it. So I ended and I was, you know, pretty sad, crying because I knew and I told them, this is not gonna make my daughter better. This is gonna make it worth it, and she's gonna take her life away in no time once she start doing this, because that treatment is not gonna help her to be happy. If you wanna help my daughter, help her with the mental health. Help her in, from inside out. 
Don't try to put this because I try all that. You know, new cloth, new look, new everything, name it. I went for it. And I knew, I knew it when that happened, that that was not going to work either. Uh, how much time do I have? Okay. Uh, I was accused to to not letting my daughter wear the cloth that she likes. I was opening and I took her. Let's go shopping, and you can choose whatever you like, however you feel comfortable. So I did, and she was like happy, like, oh, you're open to this, and she was reporting all this to the DCFS, but she was told not to believe that because that was going to be temporary. So every time she went to court, uh, she, my daughter used to say, oh, no, my mom's not going to let me do that. So I try everything. What I've really hurt me the most, that they told, I was told not to talk about God to my daughter. You cannot keep talking about God to, with your daughter. If you, I, when they took it away, I have one hour per week to visit with my daughter, with someone right there. So I won't talk about God. I won't tell her to come back home. I and you know before I went to her, I used to say, "Okay, remember what you can talk and what you cannot talk with your daughter." And I go like, "Is my daughter?" And you cannot tell me not to talk about God because they grew up in church. We know the values, so you cannot tell me that. Oh, but if you do. You know, that hour is going to go to zero. You're not going to be able to see because that's going to make her feel uncomfortable. It's going to make him uncomfortable. And he's going to, he's in danger to commit suicide. He is anyways, I told him. Um, so that's when everything uh, was going, you know, the wrong way. So I noticed that the depression, the face, the look of my daughter was changing, her voice, it really broke my heart because I said, I wish, you know, that little thing is gonna make her happy. I remember that the first, psychologist that she have at the group home because he was sent it to a group home. Ask her Jaylee, this question, Jaylee or Andrew, if I, if I look at this pencil and if this pencil were magic and you want to be a boy and all look yourself as a boy, and she say yes, uh, if I just say a couple words on this pencil and you change everything and you look like you transform yourself that pencil can transform yourself into a boy will you be happy and he told me she just looked down 
and told him her answer was like a minute after she was thinking and thinking and she said the truth I don't know I don't really know so that I brought it up to the attorney to slow down with everything and he I was told that they can't they couldn't stop anything uh, but continue with, to help her save her life. Now I'm here telling the story, but my daughter, I don't have my daughter anymore. On September 2019, at around 9.30, she decided to take her life away. She went to the railroad truck. I was told that she just walked in front of the train, lay on her knees, raised her hands, and took her life away. It was so hard for me to have that new after, you know, the day, before, the day that she took her life, I got this pain in my chest the whole day. I was keep texting her, no answer, but she used to do that. So I thought it was something normal. All of a sudden, um, like at four o'clock after I pick up my son from the high school, he asked me, how you doing, mom? You know, I don't know. I just, I'm sad. I just want to, I feel like I want to run away and scream, but I, I don't know why. He told me, have you talked to Yaley? They say, yeah, I keep texting her, but no answer. Do you want me to call her? No, when we get home, we can call her. But you know, like a mother sent, I, I, I think I felt, you know, what she was going through, what was in her head. So I went home, I texted her, I called her, she didn't answer, but she texted me back. I remember, and I still have that text that I told her, thank God you answered me. I feel weird, that's all. And then she told me a little bit of her day. Um, and that was it. I, I thought, well, she went into the shower or she's doing something. Uh, no, I didn't have any reply until the police called me at 10, 10 o'clock at night that she was looking for her. They were looking for my daughter. They asked me, you know, how do I get in? How do I, uh, and I, I guide them. You know, she lives in this uh, apartment and just knock on the door or go through the window, but I'm going to be right there. So I drove my car. My son came with me. She told me, Mom, I'm going with you. I don't know what's happening, but I'm going with you. And I said, you're going to school tomorrow. You stay home. No, I'm going. So we all went. The police was there. And when I was talking to him, he got a phone call and he told me, I got to take this. He asked me some question and I told him, my daughter was 
trying to commit suicide two months previous to, you know, to this call. So, um, you know, but they haven't paid attention on this uh, matter. And she still, you know, they took it away from me because she was going to be better off. But still, she is trying and trying to take her life away. Um, I went there and then he came back and, and I, I told her, you know, how are you going to help me to get to find my daughter? Um, I, she have an iPhone. Can you track her uh, iPhone and see located? Where is she at? Oh, no, we have to. And it didn't make sense what he told me. I know we have to have a permission from the judge. I'm the mom, and I feel like something is going on. Please help me. No, we can't. We have to go to court. To and I go, and I say, forget it. I'm gonna go and look for my daughter. So I went to the hospitals. I went around. He was talking with another guy, but I didn't know that the phone call was because they got a phone call that the person that they were looking was probably the one that they report at Pomona Railroad. They didn't say anything to me. But um, yes, it was my daughter who they were picking, you know, their pieces out of the tree. I'm just, thank you. I want everyone to know the truth about what happened to our family because it didn't have to happen. And because I didn't want it to happen, I don't want this to happen to any other family. Any other mom deserved to suffer this or to, to go through all this pain. This pain doesn't have a name. Like I tell people, how, when they, how are you doing? And I say, I can't explain this pain. And when you lose a child, it doesn't have a name. You lose your mom, you're an orphan, you lose your husband, you're a widow. When you lose a child, there is no name. And even when you breathe, it hurts. There is a lot of pain. So thank you so much for listening to my story. Abby, thank you. Um, and so I want to start with you because I want to make sure people understand that the the club told your daughter, if I understand this correctly, that um, 
if she, if custody could be taken away from you, then the state would pay for her transition procedures. Yes. Is that right? Okay, that's a that's a key part of the story. So they incentivized her uh, to do that. I think it's absolutely crucial. Nicole, can you tell us because I know you've studied this how this, this stuff has found its way. Um, how's it found its way into public schools in this way? Um, it's really a top-down approach in in Rhode Island. Um, my my school district. Um, and all school districts were required to adopt a um, gender expansive transgender non-discrimination policy um, because my state required it. And when that happened, then the ACLU took action to really help schools get these policies um, across the board. Um, so the, the ACLU is really not our friend in, in this fight. I think we all know that. And then um, it's also happening at the federal level. Um, they have a um, gender equity, the, the National Strategy on Gender Equity and Equality. Um, they say it's to advance economic security for women and girls globally because their fundamental rights are now at risk in the wake of COVID. And they specifically cite transgendered um, people um, because they, they, they talk about how transgendered athletes you know, need their rights in women's sports, but we all know that they're really just erasing the rights of women in women's sports. Um, so it, when I first started investigating this, I thought it was just my crazy school district, but then it turns out that they were doing what the state told them, and, and now we know that at the federal level, they want this to be um, pushed even harder. So um, my suggestion is to look into your school district and then to, to go further and look into how your, your state is requiring them to have these policies. January, you mentioned this briefly, but a, a lot of us that are thinking about this, imagine that it's in a curriculum. And so the idea of transparency is great for curriculum, but my impression, and it sounds like it was in, the, in your case as well, that this, is, this sort of finds its way through informal teacher training programs and you know, third-party organizations that find their way kind of informally into the situation. Is that right? Yeah, so what we found in Florida was there's an advocacy group um, who from, it was about 2016, they would go around to the schools and call them and say, how are you best serving your LGBTQ youth? They even had a checklist that the schools, they would give to the schools to say, okay, well, let's see how, how protected these youth are in your schools. Mm -hmm. Let's see how many safe spaces you have. And so that was kind of how they got their foot in the door. It's almost like they guilted them into coming in. And then they did something very important. They called these instruction manuals that are anywhere between 38 pages to 140 pages, depending upon the county. But they called them guides. And they did that on purpose. This was by design, because when you call something a policy, it has to go through the light it has to go through school board approval, which means public comment. It means being advertised so that parents know what's happening in their school systems. So from the time of 2016 till now, these were being treated as policies. There was actually disciplinary action for teachers and admin that weren't following, but they would go in and train everybody from the cafeteria worker to the bus driver, to the teachers, to the principals. And then they were even holding conferences that the schools pay for for these admin and teachers to go attend all in the name of protecting LGBTQ youth. What's your sense, and I suspect this differs from place to place, but how often are teachers enthusiastic about this and how often are they just sort of going along because it seems to be part of the job? 
I mean, I think it differs from county to county, school to school. Um, I will tell you, I've had many teachers come and thank me and say they felt like they couldn't speak out against this. Um, but then I can also tell you that we have activist teachers that have been indoctrinated themselves, whether it was in their school program and the graduate program or at the school level through those trainings and fundamentally believe that parents are a danger to their children, but only in this one area. It's like this one caveat where all of a sudden, magically, I'm a danger to my child when every other circumstance I'm not. So we have just a few minutes for questions, but I know we, if we have some questions. Do we have online questions, Jared? Okay, so anyone have questions here? You don't have to ask specifically uh, to one of the panelists to any of those, anything you didn't sort of understand about this. I know we're, we're running close to time, so we have to end at 1 o'clock. If nobody's willing, I will keep up. Yes, absolutely. For those watching online, um, thank you to the, these three moms that have done this. Absolutely. I just want to commend you for your bravery because <laughs> she is such an example of why I started speaking out in the first place because I thought in the beginning the only way to protect my daughter was to stay quiet and to not speak out and not bring this attention to our family. And I quickly realized this has permeated every aspect of our culture. And the only way I was gonna protect my children and other children like your daughter was to put a light on this. These girls are in real distress, just like your daughter was, but she misdiagnosed it. And they're buying into this lie, this notion that if they transition all their problems, all their emotional pain, their distress, the trauma, it'll all miraculously, magically disappear. And that is not what we're finding. So thank you for bringing your story out. Yes. One question here. Uh, wait for the mic, actually. So in the back, on the back row. Again, ladies, thank you so much for your testimony. My heart goes out to each and every one of you. Uh, as a father, a uh, man of faith, and as an educator by profession, um, I guess my question would be is, are the fathers actively engaged in the children's lives? For anyone? Um, my husband's very actively engaged. In fact, like I said previously, my daughter has shown no signs of distress prior to this announcement, and she was always daddy's girl. I can't speak for everyone else, but he's very active in our children's lives. Thank you. One more right here. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to learn who maybe your allies are um, in places that maybe you, you wouldn't think they would be. I, I know you talked about the ACLU kind of uh, going to great lengths to kind of hide and protect school districts and promote the stuff. It reminds me of what uh, happened in uh, Washington State regarding male to female prisoner transfers where they also went to court to try to stop these numbers from getting out. Uh, have public records advocates or, or people who are interested in kind of making sure the legal system is not misused to hide information actually offered to help you or have said I disagree with them about things but I think this is a more important principle to defend? Um, I can speak to the Goldwater Institute. They're representing me in this litigation um, against the Teachers Institute. And I've met a lot of organizations that are helping parents that want to know about critical race theory and gender um, ideology in school. Um, I mean, I can rattle off a few, like Pacific Legal Foundation I've met and been in touch with about this. They're a great organization. Um, I'm a fellow with Independent Women's Forum. 
and um, they're also, um, you know, fighting this gender ideology in school. Um, if you want to talk later, I, I think a lot of us in this room can can give you resources. Um, other than organizations, I can tell you that a lot of teachers are allies for us too, and a lot of teachers have told me their stories about how terrified they are that they're going to harm students by not following the rules, by following the rules. They're afraid of getting sued. Um, and they're just kind of standing by witnessing kids being psychologically abused by this in school. Um, I had long stories that I was going to share with teachers that my teacher friends gave me, but I know we're running short on time. Thank you. And if I could just say the Child and Parental Rights Campaign, Bernadette Broyles is here. Mm -hmm. That's who is representing our family. And they actually specialize in these types of parental rights when it comes to gender ideology. So they're doing fantastic work. They are indeed. One last question. I, I want to echo the thanks for your bravery, all three of you. Um, I was at DOJ Civil Rights, and this is Roger Severino, I'm with Heritage and EPPC. Um, an important fact about Abby's story, the US DOJ Civil Rights Division entered into a settlement agreement with Yale School requiring transgender counseling, trans transition support services, that students be addressed by their preferred pronouns and they didn't have to tell the parents. So they created an experimental lab for this transgender ideology, and Yaley was the first victim of it. This is why we're interested in it at the Heritage Foundation. This is obviously a profound cultural issue, a family issue, but it's also a legal and a policy issue. And so we want to find the best policies to stop this. Uh, the interesting thing about this issue is that anyone that believes males and females are real, that believes women are real, that you discover that someone is a woman, you don't impose that upon them, is a potential ally on this issue. And so it's, this is not a left-right issue, or it certainly should not be a left-right issue. This should be a reality versus anti-reality issue. And we're already seeing that. Uh, the, 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 the lines uh, want to be drawn for us between left and right in the media, but behind the scenes, that's not what's happening. And I can tell you directly, and the three women here with me can tell you, that there are many mothers and fathers dealing with precisely these same situations in their school districts and in their families, who for obvious reasons cannot speak about it publicly. And so I would like to thank, and I know you all would like to thank this panelist who has spoken out. Thank you so much.